Now, what we're aiming for with our publications is a 20-minute intense and fulfilling read um, that unpacks a complicated topic in ways that make it accessible to virtually anyone. And the, and, and the interesting part is that we do that with people who are in their early 20s. This is the Nasty Kambanis. Welcome to TCF World, episode 18. I'm in Beirut, and I'm joined by Aya Fatima Shamsuddin and Peter Harling at the Synapse office in Beirut. Uh, Synapse is a kind of radical and interesting new research organization, and today we're going to talk about the, some of the really interesting findings that they've come up with, uh, and we're also going to talk about the creative experiment that they're engaged with in how they approach their research uh, and uh, their efforts to get it out into the public. Uh, Aya, uh, you just have a new report out, I think, uh, a few weeks ago uh, about Lebanese youth and... And uh, what was that report called? It's Lebanon's Up and Coming, um, meaning the youth that should take over eventually at some point. Although you sort of imply that maybe they're not as up and coming as, uh, as they should be. They seem to be, but in truth they're not. They need to get ready to actually take that role. So you, you also had, you had a report that uh, was very widely read um, and, and uh, very avidly read by, by me that came out a year ago called The Cocoon. Uh, tell us really, really quickly what The Cocoon was about. The Cocoon started as um, when we were looking at parties that have youth taking arms in Lebanon. Um, we chose specifically two parties because they seemed very similar even though they have very different ideologies. Um, which are Hezbollah and the SSNP. Uh, the Kokun. You might have to say what the SSNP is. Syrian Socialist Nationalist Party. So one is a, a religious uh, uh, Shia-inspired party, and the other is a heavy secular, anti-religious uh, leftist. Yet, very interestingly, we see that they operate very in a very similar way, more similar than any other party in Lebanon, despite the difference. Um, but the idea was to show the process in which a person the process he goes through that is dictated or predetermined by the party. Um, we use the case study of Hezbollah, and we see how the person goes through schools, daycares, jobs, social life, universities, all by that party. So, so both, both these uh, quite gripping narrative reports, uh, as I read them, paint pictures of, of people who essentially grow up with very little choice about who they become and what they do. So like on, uh, in the first report, you're talking about this root level of, of political identity or ideology or allegiance. In the second report, you're talking more about opportunities, jobs, what, where can you live, what can you just do with your life on a very practical level. And in both cases, am I right that your, your conclusion is if you grow up in Lebanon, much like in, in many other parts of the Arab world, it doesn't really matter who you want to be or what you want to do. You're going to end up being funneled into uh, a pretty fixed route based on your sectarian background or your class or your, your surroundings. Okay, I'd rather not say that pessimistically or cynically, but that was for the cocoon, definitely. That was what I was trying to say. When you grow up within the setting of a party, yeah, it's almost impossible for you to get out. Uh, but which was very related to the other, the Lebanon's up-and-coming paper, was my idea to show that there is a group that has managed, maybe not very much on purpose, not to get sucked into a party or leave. They are the hope that is left in Lebanon since they have managed to escape. So they have a chance to work on themselves and take over. As a reader, what's 
unique and really drew me in when, when I read these pieces is uh, voices of, of people that I, I never usually hear from and, and also uh, truth-telling by these people. I mean, I, I've, I've met a lot of people like this in the course of my research and very rarely would they tell me the things that they were telling you for the record for you to write about in this in, in this report, uh, including some pretty, I would say, you know, privileged information about how these militant ideological parties try to recruit them in, into their orbit. So how, how did you get how did you get this material? A lot of it is, I think, me being their age, but also it's not that scary or intimidating of a process. Um, to them, it's not really privileged information, actually. This is something, this is their daily life. It's not a secret. Like something I was very worried about sharing from the SSNP is how they salute each other. They say, Tahya Surya, long live Syria. And I asked them if that's okay to say. And they're like, of course, that's okay to say. That's how we salute each other. So just, um, I was asking them about their daily life, basically. It wasn't a secret. And I had, I think the thing was, there was genuine interest from my side. And I didn't try to uh, lie about what I was trying to write. And they had interest in sharing. I think that was it. They wanted well, to talk. So, I mean, was, was, there, was there some difference in trust or access? Because, uh, I mean, would it be different if Peter were doing the same interviews because he's, he's a foreigner? Definitely. Uh, <laughs> Well, I think part of what Synapse is trying to do is to bring um, that intimacy to, to surface, um, which we do by hiring um, people locally, um, especially um, people in the early stages of their, their career, uh, which haven't been predetermined themselves to work in any particular way. Um, and we invest considerably in their, in their fieldwork, so their own lived experience of the topics they want to, to write about. And the fact that none of what we publish is actually um, something which is imposed uh, upon us by, by a client helps also define and frame the topic in such ways as to liberate the people we're, we're talking to. Um, it, they can relate to what we're trying to approach. I definitely agree. I think if it was uh, someone not Lebanese already approaching them with a different language, they would have a higher, like they would be on guard basically. So I was talking to them in Arabic about something, like we share very similar daily lives besides the part that where we decided to carry arms and we have allegiance to a specific party. It's easy to start a conversation with anyone, technically. Uh, if they have no reason to worry from what I'm showing them. I got the impression reading these pieces that you spent a, a long period of time talking to these people. They didn't read like the kind of interview you get when you set it up, go in, have two hours on a Saturday, and then, and then uh, uh, process your notes. So, so what, what kinds of relationships... Uh, or time span are we talking about for these these conversations? Uh, I think the least, like the smallest or shortest conversation I had was an hour. Um, a lot, I started with people I knew, which was easy to drag with conversation, but they would then point me to people they know that I had no idea, brief them in a way that would make them trust me and not sound like a spy. And then we would go to a restaurant, eat or have coffee, which is already like it breaks the ice, such meetings. And honestly, they, they have a lot to say. They're very eager to talk. And I was really eager to listen. Um, so would you meet with some of these people once a month for several months or see them once and then come back six months later and, and, and follow up? Some of them I would see more regularly than others. Others, I think, would feel like already they said what they had to say and wouldn't like express implicitly maybe not wanting to see again or not having more to say. Uh, others were more willing to 
like they said, if you need to see me again, I'm more than happy to talk to you and explain to you something you need to know. Were you surprised by how deterministic the pathways uh, to identity formation seemed once you documented all the steps that went into making someone, let's say, a Hezbollah member in the early 20s or, you know, made, started them off as a kid and made them end up as a cadre uh, by the time they were in college? Not necessarily a surprise, but anything, you, like, I possibly knew about this from afar, but then going into it is always more shocking, like seeing how it is every step of the way, even though I have an idea. Um, what was surprising, I would say, how I felt there, there was a level of obliviousness to, to this process, which is what I was trying to conclude in the cocoon, that it's fine if you are within the system, but as long as you realize that you are within the system. So I was just calling it like... You mean obliviousness that the members of these loyalist blocks, let's say, don't realize that they're being funneled into a conveyor belt? Yes, because it's their normal daily life. So they're not thinking about it the way I'm thinking about it, like, oh, look, there's a process since birth, through, child, through adolescence, in their social life they're not thinking like oh we're being targeted no this is this is their life and and in your second paper the 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 one that just came out uh you're you're there there you're looking at the people who are not part of any loyalist block these are the the majority i think of lebanese who aren't paid paid up members of one uh, one party organization or another and were you surprised by anything you found there or was that more about documenting a sad reality that we sort of all understand by osmosis when we spend enough time. Okay, so first, I don't think they're the majority. That's the sad part. Uh, second, I was surprised with something very much that is uh, the people that I would consider in this group that is not in the political parties or have not been stuck in them. Um, when I talk to them for a bit long, uh, I feel like I can bring out the sectarianism in them. And as I mentioned in the paper, when it comes to the elections, many of these people who do not identify throughout the whole, like the past nine years with any party, decided to vote for a specific party that represents their sect. Uh, so no, it wasn't do just documenting, it was also a learning process to me, it was discovering something. If I can jump in, I think it's important to bear in mind that um, deterministic dynamics exist everywhere. If you look at the US, vast majority of people who found a startup uh, white, male, and already well-off. Um, so I think what we're trying to do in the region here through the work that I and, and others uh, have been doing is, is put more flesh um, and, and skin on, on the bones of what people would describe as youth in a very generic way. The Arab world has been through spectacular transformations of the past few years, mostly driven by a disenfranchised youth but which we tend to approach either as this kind of mass, uh, nondescript, uh, or through preconceived ideas relating to radicalization or rebellion or submissiveness and whatnot. So here I think we're trying to present um, individual narratives uh, and life stories uh, that can help people uh, bring some new ones to, um, to this broad category. And one more thing, I wasn't trying to make everybody depressed through it. I tried my best at the end to make it just like, um, I wouldn't even want to say wake up call, but I'm telling them that you have something that you're so happy about in Lebanon, but if you don't do more effort to keep it, even this little thing that you have that you're happy about will no longer be there for you to hold on to. So, How did your subjects respond to the, the writing? Did they read it? Yes, I was very happy. Um, way when, like it was the, the audience was younger for the second piece. 
uh, and they were happy and they felt they related, which was uh, something I was worried about. Like I was worried I wouldn't be able to actually speak for the youth, uh, but many felt like I described it well or realistically. Who, who reads these pieces? A good question. <laughs> uh, this one, I think, had a larger, but not even just in the youth. Like uh, I think this piece reached uh, young people, my age mostly, probably less than 30, but I have no numbers, uh, that identify in this. Uh, Lebanese? I mean, was your readership, you think, mostly Lebanese? Or were there people around the world, around, around the Arab world, around the wider world, uh, uh, looking at, the, at this? I mean, one of my one of my pet peeves, by the way, is you know I've I've, I've and I suspect you you two will share this view. I've been very tired for a long time of this notion that the Arab world is somehow different than the world. I mean, the Arab countries are countries in the world, and disenfranchised young people in in Lebanon probably have more in common with disenfranchised young people in Greece given the economic profiles of those countries than they do with Moroccans, let's say. But there's this sort of artificial othering of the Arab world as an analytical unit. Um, and, I, and I appreciate that the precision and specificity of your narrative work is, is a sort of you know, quiet way of rebelling against that kind of segmenting. Yeah, for, for now, the, the audience, uh, and that, that, that's true of Aya's latest piece, is mostly based in, in Lebanon, uh, predominantly, and, and in Beirut specifically, um, English-speaking, uh, and, and young. Uh, so we're talking about uh, predominantly people between 25 and, and 30, uh, some a bit younger, some a bit older. Um, and then uh, we have an audience in, in the U.S., which is, uh, which is significant, and, and in Europe. But we want to, over time, shift from English to Arabic. So, of course, we're translating our pieces, but I think that these pieces ultimately should be written uh, in Arabic, and, and that will help us reach a far more local audience than what we're doing today. These pieces exist in Arabic and English. Is, is there twice as many people reading them in English, ten times as many, the same? What's the... Well, we're simply not geared towards circulating Arabic uh, long form as we are towards circulating English uh, pieces. So it's a whole process. I mean, the idea that you can take a piece in one language and just get someone to translate it and then throw it on social media and it will work is, is a fiction. Uh, people here consume news articles or any other uh, intellectual products in very different ways uh, depending on the language uh, you're, you're using. So we will have to completely adjust our model to a complete, to, you know, to a different cultural sphere. And that's a matter of, of time. For now, we use English because it's the language we need uh, internally uh, in terms of the, the, the mentoring, training, editing process. And as our first fellows actually grow into uh, the role of mentors themselves, uh, we, we can hope to, to shift towards uh, a full-blown uh, Arabic editing process. So the pieces we're talking about live on uh, the Synaps website. That's uh, S-Y-N-A-P-S dot network. Uh, and, and these uh, pieces by Aya Fatima Shamsuddin were called Lebanon's Up and Coming and The Cocoon. Uh, I strongly urge you to check them out. Uh, this is the Nasi Kambanis in Beirut. I'm talking to Peter Harling and Aya Fatima Shamsuddin. Uh, and we're going to continue uh, after a short break. Order from Ashes, New Foundations for Security in the Middle East, is a multi-year TCF project supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. 
TCF experts are studying new ways to manage conflict and promote stability. You can order the book and read the reports on our website. Go to tcf.org and look for the Arab Regional Security page. We're back in Beirut. This is the Nasi Kambanis with Aya Fatima Shamsuddin and Peter Harling at the Synapse headquarters mm-hmm. in Beirut. Uh, and uh, we've been talking about some of the research that Aya has done on uh, Lebanese youth. Uh, and now I want to I shift gears a little bit uh, because Synapse itself is such an interesting and radical model of how to do research. And it's something that I think affects really anyone who thinks about policy or, or policy research or academic research. They've grappled a lot in a, in a very unusual way, which uh, we're about to hear more about, uh, by trying to lay bare their entire internal process to the public. So you can, you can read online their own uh, guidelines for how to come up with a research question or how to write a lead or how to uh, conduct a, a fieldwork interview. What's the big idea behind what you've set up here and, and, and why is it that you won't call it a, a think tank? But what we're trying to do is to get the right information from the right people to the right people, which is a problem that I think we all, we all face. I've been in, uh, in various branches of the information industry for the past uh, 20 years, working in the, the Arab world uh, primarily, and uh, as many colleagues, only uh, yourself, have, uh, have been quite frustrated with, with how the, uh, the information industry has, has evolved. So we're using Synapse as, uh, as a place where we can experiment different uh, solutions to this, this problem we all have, which is how do we access quality information on the topics that are most meaningful to us. Uh, so our whole process is determined by that need uh, and by all of the obstacles we, we face in trying to satisfy it. When you sort of burst onto the scene, it was, for me, it was, uh, I think, with Aya's uh, cocoon paper and also similar to the cocoon, another brilliant paper, which was about how the Lebanese central bank, but really about how the fraudulent economy of Lebanon works. And these were, but for me, these were both things I've thought about specifically for 15 years. And I read these, these papers and learned things I didn't know uh, about something I had already done my own research on. Also, uh, they were accompanied with this weird and cool uh, openness about how you were doing what you were doing. And this is something really we don't see anywhere, not in journalism, not in pure research, not in academia. There isn't this uh, sort of advertising, here's how we did it, here's how we researched it, here's how we wrote it, here's where we might have messed up. And how you can do it as well. Yes, indeed. I think we want to be very generous in, in, in sharing not simply um, how, how we do things, but what we're struggling with. Uh, because I think everyone's struggling out there um, and, and, and is inhibited by... Um, and hiding it, struggling exactly. hiding it so under we, bluster. I think, I think we could, could do much better in terms of functioning as, as a community. Now, what we're aiming for with our publications is a 20-minute intense and fulfilling read um, that unpacks a complicated topic in ways that make it accessible to virtually anyone. And the, and, and the interesting part is that we do that with people who are in their early 20s. They're not experts. They haven't been working on this for 20 years, right? So we give them the opportunity to do, of course, the desk research, but then also the field work, talking to all people, to all people involved, over a relatively long cycle uh, to reach that 20 minutes of intense, 
and, and fulfilling read takes us about 10 months. Um, yeah, 10 exactly. months exactly oh, this long cycle when I when we published Lebanon's up and coming when uh, when I had like more response and many people were like okay we really like it but can you tell us why it takes you so long to publish it they don't see from I don't think people see from what we publish that why it would take us yeah 10 months up to a year um, but there's like so many steps yes I have a, we have a nice idea that we're starting a research board but and even if I talk to 10 people I might change my mind I might find that this is too narrow or too vague we can't work on that and then I have to find more questions and more people that are more helpful or more specific to what I'm looking for um, it is a long process of uh, meeting people figuring out who to talk to then the writing the editing and 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 you're also taking more time because you don't come in with a pre-cooked conclusion. And that's also because nobody's funding this, right? So uh, we do it in, in our free time and, and, and out of pocket, of course. we How have, liberating. Well, we have a, you know, a, a hybrid <laughs> business model whereby we generate resources otherwise, which we then uh, feed into uh, this, this process, which is also self-serving because it's a way for us uh, of uh, helping our staff uh, make progress so it takes them 10 months to reach that stage where they would publish something that you like. But an enormous amount of change within them occurs during those 10 months, makes them very effective staff uh, afterwards. So um, I think for us, it's, it's an investment and it's also a bit unfair to the public in the sense that people have no idea what it takes to produce such work. It would take so long that it would require so, so many resources, right? So in a sense, it's also intellectual dumping uh, it's unfair to publications that, that earn money through monetization of, of their work. And that's one reason why we want to be disclosing our methodology, the difficulties we face. You don't want to be unfairly competing with the New York Times magazine. Let's well, not say. in that sense, but we do want to be uh, you know, giving as much as we can to a community, a community of researchers and publishers and editors uh, and try to create more of a, of a sectoral identity, if you will, rather than just uh, competition between big or small entities. I was admiring these uh, uh, sort of tutorials that you have put together with your colleagues, which I find tremendously useful, uh, talking again about, you know, you say, we all do interviews every day. Have we ever thought about what makes a good interview? What makes a bad interview? I read that and learned a lot, and I've been doing interviews most days of my life for decades. Uh, and what I, I was surprised when you told me that very few people seem to uh, be interested in interacting with those process uh, materials. And, and I was surprised because I, I, I figured in the research, in the world of research, journalism, policy analysis, and, and academia, there'd be quite a thirst for frank and open conversations about the methods of our trade and, its, and their limitations. Well, I'm sure the thirst, the, the appetite is there, but then uh, many of these uh, sectors or industries are in crisis, and that brings out a lot of insecurity among journalists and academics and um, experts and whatnot. It's a very competitive world out there that makes it difficult to admit any shortcoming or even any uh, kind of introspection. <laughs> uh, and then we also have the issue which is 
that our uh, vehicle for disseminating our work, our mechanism for distribution, is essentially social media at this stage. People don't sign up to email distribution lists anymore. So, And they don't subscribe to magazines or no, newsletters exactly. like in the old so, days. So they'll follow you on, on Twitter or Facebook or whatnot, but those are platforms that are geared towards the opposite kind of material. One-off. Long-form and anything educational don't work. We're talking about emotions, we're talking about you know, engagement based on very instinctive reactions. Our products, if you will, have to sink in. They don't, they don't provoke a clear-cut emotional reaction that would lead to a share. And as a result, uh, that first layer of people who see our work um, are the only people we reach. That's, that's uh, I mean, such a, such a root challenge. Um, and, and it leads to the other big question that overhangs this enterprise, which is everything in the world, again, of, of policy, advocacy, analysis, politics is based on information, right? So when, you know, before people talk about, should we have sanctions against Lebanon or should we terrorist 800 more Lebanese because we don't like Hezbollah, you know, but before we get to that, we need someone who's telling us actually what happens. And in the, the information economy around journalism and policy, there's less and less of that first input, what's up, and there's much more and more of the hot take, what should you do? And some of it's informed, right? Some of it are people who have expertise, uh, but even those people are only being asked to give their take and never to give first their explanation. And, and your work seems uh, determined to, take, to, to focus on that first step. Uh, and my, my, you can answer whatever you want, but the question I have is, how come no one wants to fund that kind of work? Well, I'm not sure I have an answer to that, but for sure what we're seeing is a deterioration of writing. Okay? People don't have time, they're not given the resources, not just to write and go through the multiple drafts that... Uh, are entailed in any, in any good writing, um, but also they're not given the, the resources and time to live the experiences you need to, to right. write in the One year of conversations with, with people you know and people you've just met before you're going to tell us what to think about indoctrination. Exactly. And so indeed we're competing over breaking news, over actionables, over derivatives such as short videos and AJ Plus and whatnot, but in my view any quality product under any format. But I mean, Aya could have done, instead of doing the cocoon, she could have, based on what she already knew on day one from growing up in Lebanon and being smart, she could have written a first-person piece about how people get indoctrinated. She could have delivered a video clip to camera to have like a multi multimedia <laughs> element to it. Uh, why would that have been worse? Uh, well, it's not, we, it's not a blog. Uh, the idea is not to say what I feel about it. Um, people, some people disagree, but I feel the cocoon was quite objective. I was describing something that I, yes, I knew about, yes, I had my own opinion about, but I did experience in a different way. And uh, already this had some attacks. So imagine if I'm speaking in the first person, I would be representing nobody and speaking for nobody. So definitely, I think we would be reaching less people, we would be less welcome. And that was our first piece, especially. So that was something we had to make an impact with. But also, I think we're, you know, we're, we're indifferent to some extent to, to, to reach and clicks and shares and analytics and whatnot. We're interested in that only because we take the public seriously and we want to learn as much as we can from that engagement and interaction with the public. 
But it doesn't matter uh, whether things work or not in that sense. Because no one's paying for it to begin exactly. with. Exactly. We don't want to be adding to the noise. We want to be a very low noise organization that helps people who want to make sense of difficult topics. And now that, you know, it, it requires some effort on their part too. Um, if they don't want to spend 20 minutes reading a, a long form piece, if they don't want to sign up to an email distribution uh, uh, list or whatnot, then too bad. Um, but we're not going to chase them. We're not going to pay Facebook, for instance, so that more people get to see our posts. <laughs> Whenever you go to the internet to ask a question, what's the first page you open? Wikipedia. It corresponds to a need, right? A need felt worldwide. Who is paying money to Wikipedia? It take, you know, of course, it's, it's a volunteer uh, organization and, and a lot of the work they, they've done is also a labor, they do is also a labor of love, but there are costs entailed if only hosting uh, data, right? Um, very few people actually ever contribute, ever feel that they owe anything back to uh, Wikipedia. So I believe that we're in a phase uh, in which our, our relationship to information is undergoing a transformation that we have yet to um, come to grips with. Uh, and that's what we want to be experimenting with. Uh, but for now, I think although the desire for taking stock, taking time, making the effort to invest in quality information is there, but it, it's not how the market actually works. And I think we'll have to find ways of adapting what we do without reneging on our principles to how the market actually works today. Now, of course, to, to, to fund all this, we need um, uh, to generate the resources uh, required, and they're, they're, they're considerable. Uh, we, we, we pay good salaries to our staff, uh, we, we pay social security and so on. It's a proper first job. I mean, that's also part of the spirit. We want to provide young people with a very meaningful first professional or second professional experience in life. And so that means doing things the right way in terms of having uh, appropriate facilities, uh, mentoring and management capacities and whatnot. So uh, we will expand depending on our ability to, to grow the, the, the business on the, on the other front. Well, I, I look forward to reading uh, everything that's uh, coming up. Uh, I've been talking to uh, Peter Harling, the uh, founder and uh, director of Synapse and Aya Fatima Shamsuddin, uh, a fellow and uh, now Lebanon program director <laughs> at uh, Synapse. Uh, up and coming. Yep, and I, up and coming, I hope with less irony than the title of your paper. Uh, I strongly encourage uh, listeners to check out their website. It's uh, synapse.network, so that would be Synapse uh, to uh, us Anglophones without the E at the end, S Y N A P S dot network. Uh, thanks for your time. Thank you. Brad. Thank you for speaking to us. You've been listening to TCF World uh, in Beirut with uh, Aya Fatima Shamsuddin and Peter Harling. And uh, until next time. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.